Well, I think it was appropriate when we started singing uh, the song, Lord, I Need You. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever preached or even led a Bible or even just tried to share the gospel with someone, but whenever you do that, there's always just this feeling of inadequacy, like, man, like, I'm not, like, to be able to handle God's word and be able to preach that and share that with somebody else, it just feels like a large responsibility, and there's always just this feeling of, like, man, I'm, this is just a big responsibility. Can I handle this? Um, and so it's just appropriate singing that. And I get that feeling every time I preach. Uh, but today, especially, as I was preparing for this sermon, I just had this feeling like the, the subject I want to talk about today is just it's a big task uh, to undertake. I just felt that this week. Like, like, man, I've preached on some things before, but like this is, I feel like, is... It just feels intense. And so we're just singing that, thinking, like, man, this is just really appropriate. Um, but I want to talk about something today that I think is deeply relevant in our culture, but something that's also deeply relevant to every single one of us in here. Uh, so I want to talk about happiness. Uh, everybody wants to be happy. You, every single one of you wants to be happy. I want to be happy. I'll tell you that. Right. And we do everything we can in our lives to be happy. We, we organize our entire lives around being happy. Right, we, you, you play sports to be happy. You watch TV because you, you want to be happy. You, you eat food to be happy. You play music, listen to music, uh, whatever it is, all trying to be happy. And you always want to achieve the highest level of happiness possible. All right, and, but I think this desire at root is a good thing. Might not be what you were expecting me to say, but I think it's a good thing to want to be happy. I think it's a God-given desire. In fact, I think that God wants us to be happy, maybe even more than we want to be happy for ourselves. I think God wants us to pursue the highest level of happiness possible. At this point, I feel like some of you are probably wondering what I'm saying. You're probably wondering whether or not this is actually biblical because a lot of us, I think, have grown up in churches or churches uh, been in a church environment where we, we feel like God doesn't want us to be happy, where we feel like uh, God just wants us to kind of show up uh, and, and dutifully just obey him uh, with little to no regard for us being happy or joyful in that. Now, God most definitely does want us to obey him, but I also think that uh, it, it's a subtle but I think a deadly lie when we fall into believing that God is not for our happiness and for our joy. And so I want to try this morning to show from Scripture that God is for our happiness uh, and that he's for our ultimate joy and for our satisfaction. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Psalm 84. If you don't have a Bible, I'll just encourage you, uh, raise your hand. Dave's in the back. Uh, he'll bring you one. Um, I just think, I think it's important that you see it for yourself in the Bible, just so you know, not making this up. You can see it with your own eyes. Um, and hopefully make connections for yourself. Uh, if you're getting one uh, from the back, or you might even have a different version than I do, so some words might sound a little bit differently, uh, but the general meaning and general concept should all be the same right there. Uh, so Psalm 84. Give you a little bit to turn there. Uh, psalm 84 is a celebratory psalm. So it, it's celebrating something. 
And what it's celebrating is a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at his temple. Now keep in mind, this is written uh, in the, this is Old Testament Judaism here. This is uh, prior to Christ coming to the earth. And so at this time, the temple, really worship of God was restricted to the temple. Like that was the place where God's people had to go to worship him. It was the place where God's presence was made known most fully. And so for Old Testament Jews, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, uh, was almost obligatory. It was something they almost had to do. And it was a joyful experience. Think about that. With God's presence is really restricted to one place, one building, but you have the opportunity to finally go there, that's a joyful experience. And so the psalmist in Psalm 84 is celebrating this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. All right, and so let's go ahead and read through all of Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I want to start by focusing on verses 1 and 2 here. So look what the psalmist says, uh, verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. All right, what, what's he talking about here? He's talking about exactly what I want to talk about. He's talking about happiness. He's talking about the very desires of his heart and the very core of his being, like what he desires at his very root. You know, I mean, verse 2, my soul, so the very core of my personhood longs, yes, it faints for the course of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, so every, every facet of my being sings for joy at the thought of being in the presence of God. Right, he's talking about happiness. He's saying, look, I want to be happy. I have this desire, and I want it to be fulfilled, and it is fulfilled. Right? I'm attaining that highest level of happiness. And what is the object of his happiness? Right, what, what is that thing that is satisfying him more than anything else? That thing that is making him happy, that is bringing him this ultimate joy. All right, when he says, my heart and my flesh sing for joy, to what, or to whom, rather? God himself. The psalmist is celebrating the fact that God himself is that object of his ultimate happiness. 
He's celebrating the fact that he has the ability to go to the temple to worship the Lord in his presence because in the Lord's presence is ultimate and true satisfaction and ultimate joy. Right? The psalmist is happy when he's writing this. And so, church, listen, like I said at the beginning, we all want to be happy, and I think that's a God-given desire. I think God created us with an endless uh, and an insatiable desire and hunger for happiness. It's just endless. No matter what you do, you always want more. You're never happy enough, always seeking greater happiness. And so think about it. An infinite hunger can only be satisfied by something infinite. All right, Blaise Pascal, he was a great mathematician, physicist, and Christian philosopher, uh, said it this way. He said, the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. Right? The infinite abyss of our hearts, our infinite hunger for happiness, can only be filled by something that's infinite. Namely, God himself. God, the only thing or being which is infinite, is the only thing that can fulfill our endless hunger for happiness. Augustine, uh, the great church father and theologian, said it this way, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless. The human heart is restless, seeking satisfaction and happiness in all things. It's life outside of Christ is an endless track to find happiness. And it's restless until we find ultimate happiness. But as Augustine says, God has created us for himself and our hearts will not rest until they find rest in him. The Westminster Confession of Faith on his very first article states that the chief end of man or, or the primary purpose for man's existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But it's not just these theologians or these philosophers or these statements of faith that talk about enjoying God. And it's not even just Psalm 84. If you read through scripture, you'll see that it's absolutely filled with commands to find joy in God and the encouragement to find happiness and peace and joy and satisfaction in God. I'm just going to read through some here quick. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 27:4. one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Right, it says one thing have I asked of the Lord. Just that one thing, what is that? to stand in the Lord's presence, to gaze upon his beauty. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Isaiah 26, 8 and 9. Your name and renown are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. John 6, 35, Jesus talking here, right after he uh, feeds the 5,000, says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. His point being that these people, these thousands of people are hungering for this bread. They're ultimately seeking happiness and satisfaction in this food and in this water and this nourishment. His point, though, is that 
I'm the true bread of life. I'm the true uh, well of living water. There is no ultimate satisfaction in anything besides me. If you partake of me, there you will find ultimate satisfaction. I'm the bread of life. Philippians 1.21, the Apostle Paul writes this, To live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? How can dying be gain? His whole point is meant to live as Christ, to die as gain. Dying is gain when Christ is better than everything else. See, Paul understands that dying is gain because when he dies, he goes to be in the presence of God with Christ, and that's far better than anything in life. Paul gets that. Paul is finding and seeking his ultimate happiness in Christ. Two chapters later, Philippians 3.8, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, counts all things as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The worth of Christ surpasses the worth of anything else. He says he counts all things as rubbish, as garbage, trash. We don't use the word rubbish. British people do. That's what rubbish means. Actually, if you translate that word literally in the Greek, it actually means feces. So Paul says, I count all things as being feces relative to the worth of Christ. Right. Paul got it. Paul, I mean, he was writing Philippians from prison, I believe. And this whole letter to Philippians, he's just writing with great joy. Why? Because he knows that his ultimate happiness and joy is found in Christ. And so the whole point and the, kind of the main point of the sermon I want us to get is this, uh, that God has created us to be happy in him. And he's the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings for happiness and pleasure. That God has created us to be happy in him. He's the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings for pleasure and for happiness. Now this is kind of, we don't hear this in church a lot. Right? Well, we, a lot of us grew up in churches and we think of God as like this, like a cosmic fun sucker, don't we? Like he just, he doesn't want us to have fun. Come to church, don't have fun. I just want you to come and obey me. I don't want you to enjoy anything, right? God has created us for the ultimate happiness. He wants us to be happy and have joy ultimately in him, not in material things, right? God does not, he's not glorified by us seeking ultimate happiness and our sports ability and our material gain, whatever that might be. Ultimately, our happiness needs to be found in him. Because when it comes down to it, he's the only one who can satisfy. And so that's our main point. That God has created us to be happy in him. And he's the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings for pleasure and for happiness. And so from that main point, uh, it carries with it a number of, of implications, and I'll focus on three of them uh, briefly here this morning. And so the first implication of that main point is this, that God is glorified by our being happy in him. That God is glorified by our being happy in him. All, all throughout the Bible, we see God's commands for us to glorify him. Old Testament, New, New Testament, like God commands his people, make much of my name, glorify me. All right, so what does it mean to glorify something? 
It means to, to make something look better, to exalt it, to magnify it, to make it look bigger and better, to, to show it off as being worthy. And so God asks us and invites us to do that for him. He says, glorify me. Now, let me ask you this. What's the most effective way to glorify something? What's the most effective way to make something look great and to make it look worthy? I think the answer is to be happy in that thing, to be satisfied by that thing. Uh, Marriage is a prime example of this, maybe the best example uh, that God's given us. Uh, So married couples think about this. If you're not married, just imagine with me. The happier you are with your spouse, the the more joyful you are in him or her, the more satisfied you are with your spouse, the more he or she is lifted up and exalted as being worthy, as being satisfying. Does that make sense? So think, I mean, think, if you're married and you say to your spouse, look, I have, I have eyes only for you. My affections are only for you. Nobody and no one, no thing can stir my affections like you can. I, my, my love is for you alone. You make me happier than anything else. You are far more worthy than anything else. You are better than anything else or anyone else. That is one of the best things you can do for your spouse. That is glorifying to your spouse. That is exalting him or her as being higher and better than anything else. Finding great joy in your spouse is, in a sense, glorifying him or her. And so it is with God. The more joyful we are in God, the more happy we are in him, the more satisfied we are with God, the more we exalt him as being better than anything else this world has to offer, the more he is glorified. Right? Does that make sense? Can you, can you make that connection? Right? The happier we are in God, the more he is glorified. John Piper, who's really built his entire ministry and his, his entire life on this concept, uh, he says this. He said, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So the the degree to which we are satisfied in God is the degree to which he is glorified in our lives. Because when we are ultimately satisfied in God, above all things, we're saying God is better than all these other things. We are glorifying God the most. So God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So God wants us to be happy, ultimately in him, because he's glorified by that too. It's the best of both worlds. That's implication number one. Second implication is this. So because God has created us for himself, and because he's created us to ultimately find our uh, lasting and pleasure and satisfaction and joy in him, because of that, we don't have to choose between being happy and being holy. See, you see, so often, and I think a lot of well-meaning churches, a lot of well-meaning people often kind of create this dichotomy between uh, holiness and happiness. They present holiness over here on this end of the spectrum. They say, all right, if you're going to be a Christian and you're going to follow Christ, you have to pursue holiness. So you're over here, you forsake all your happiness, and you just obey God and pursue holiness and 
be conformed to the image of Christ. Forsake all happiness, pursue holiness. Right, that's typically one end of the spectrum that people present. The opposite end of the spectrum is typically happiness over here. So these are the people that would say, have no regard for obeying God, have no regard for walking in holiness, just do whatever feels good, do whatever makes you happy. Just pursue happiness. Be, be a hedonist, if you know what that means. Just pursuing pleasure in all things. And so it's always presented as this dichotomy, as a spectrum. You either follow Christ and pursue holiness and forsake all your happiness, or you forsake all your holiness, forsake God, all those things, and just pursue happiness, pursue what makes you feel good. Now, if you're, let's say you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and you tell them, you have to forsake all your happiness and just pursue holiness in Christ. I mean, that sounds like a bleak message. I don't, I mean, if I was, <laughs> before I knew Christ, if someone presented it to me that way, I don't know that I would have bought in. Forsake all my happiness? Like, but what I, what I want to get across is this, is that this is it's a false dichotomy, right? This happiness and holiness thing. All right, and here's why. Let me explain. Uh, first of all, what is it to be holy? It's, it's to conform to the perfection of God uh, in our actions, in our attitudes, and in our very nature. All right, it's to, be, to conform to the image of Christ, to be, to be like Christ, essentially. All right, which is how we were created to be. Uh, without turning there, just you can hopefully remember it from memory. If you want to turn there, if it'll be helpful, go ahead and do that. Uh, but Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read the account of God creating the earth and then God creating Adam and Eve. And we know that God created Adam and Eve in a state of perfection. So he created them in the perfect garden, free of sin. They walked with God fully. And so in that state, they were, first, first of all, they were perfectly holy. There was no sin in their lives. Right? They, were, they were godly in all their ways and their actions and their attitudes and their nature. They were holy. But not only were they perfectly holy, they were also perfectly happy too. There was no sin. There was no evil, no disease, no sickness, no death. Right? They were full in their holiness and full in their happiness, full joy. This is how God created them to be. It's how God created us to live and exist. But if you have any church background at all or any familiarity with the Bible, you know Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve. But what happens in Genesis 3? We know that's the fall of man. That's when sin enters the world. Uh, Satan enters in the form of a serpent. He seduces Adam and Eve into disobeying God, uh, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know that they end up eating it. Uh, and we just talked about this in our Romans Bible study that the, this morning. Because Adam sinned, Right, his sin becomes all of our sins, so therefore all of humanity becomes sinful because of Adam's sin. Uh, but what I, what I want to focus on is this. Is how, what does Satan do to convince Adam and Eve to eat of this fruit? Like, how does he convince them? They have everything. Like, they're perfect in holiness, perfect in happiness. What are they, what are they lacking that Satan convinces them that they need to eat this fruit? And what, what he essentially does, if you look at the story, is he convinces them that eating this fruit will make them happier. He convinces them that God is withholding something good from them 
that they, they are not fully satisfied in God, that there is something they can do to achieve a higher level of happiness. He says, listen, you know, God's not enough. He, no, he doesn't want you to know good and evil. Eat this fruit. He convinces them that this disobedience will be better than obedience to God himself. And they buy into this, they eat the fruit, and then here we are today in a sinful and fallen and broken world. And so from the story, I think what we see is this, that the very essence of sin is to seek happiness and satisfaction in something other than God. That's the very nature of sin, to choose something over God himself. That's, that's what idolatry is, to place something in the place of God. And so when you sin and when I sin, and we all do, even when we're in Christ, we still sin. We still will sin until the day that we die. When we sin, we are essentially looking God in the face and telling him that whatever this small sin is, this little, this little trifle or this momentary pleasure is better than him. That this little, this little sin, whatever it might be, this, this sin offers more pleasure and more satisfaction and more joy than God himself, the infinite creator of the universe. Right, that is the very nature of sin, to choose something over God and to seek satisfaction in something other than God. Yet we know that nothing can satisfy besides God, as we've already established. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from C.S. Lewis. Uh, and he wrote in his brilliant essay called The Weight of Glory, uh, talking about this issue. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, I love what he says at the beginning. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Right, see, so often we think, uh, as believers, is that we have, we have these desires, and many of them are sinful. And so we think, man, I just need to, like, if I could just shut off all, all this desire then like, I would be, I'd be good. I'd be able to walk in holiness and keep from sinning. And C.S. Lewis says, no, our desires are not too strong. They're too weak. We're satisfied with far too little. He compares us to an ignorant child who's sitting in a slum making mud pies. Saying, that's what we are when we choose to seek pleasure in sin rather than pleasure in God. Right, just a kid sitting there in a muddy puddle just making mud pies. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? He says, that's what we are when a holiday at the sea is offered us. Right? Like a kid sitting there in the mud, ignorantly making mud pies when a holiday at the sea is offered him. He says, this is what we are when we are choosing sin over God. Infinite joy is offered us. God has offered us. He's right there. Infinite pleasure, infinite satisfaction, infinite happiness. The only thing that can fulfill that endless abyss in our hearts that we choose to go on making the mud pies in the slum. 
And so our Lord doesn't find our desires too strong, but too weak. We're satisfied by far too little. And so church, God does not ask us to either, either be happy or be holy. Right? We need not choose and we dare not choose. Right? It's, they're one and the same thing. Our happiness is directly tied to our holiness and our holiness is directly tied to our ultimate happiness. You know, this is something I've learned over the past couple years. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, grew up going to church, uh, and my mindset was always, as a Christian, all right, I'm just going to try to be a good Christian. I'm just going to try to be a good Christian, try to be a better Christian. And so, and so what I did was just, you know, I, I would just I'd grip my teeth and try really, really hard to not sin and try really, really hard to do the right thing. You know what would happen? I would just, I would just fail. I'd try super hard, and then I'll, I'll, well, you know, I sinned again. Just failure after failure after failure, and just frustrated and more frustrated and more frustrated. But, but and that's what so many Christians do, is we just, we just try really hard, grit our teeth, say, I'm not going to sin, I'm going to pursue holiness, and we end up failing. But what I've learned over the past couple years, especially within the last year, is this. I remember texting one of my friends about a year ago, um, and I said something like this to him. I said, I can tell that I'm growing in my faith in Christ because um, I feel like I am walking in more holiness now. Uh, but the key to that is this. I'm not getting better at trying harder and just, like, obeying rules, although I am becoming more obedient. But that's not the key to this. I told him, the key to this that I'm finding is that I'm becoming more and more satisfied with God and more and more dissatisfied with everything that is not God or with everything that is not of God. And that's something I've still been learning, still trying to learn, and still trying to apply. And I think that is the key to walking in holiness. You can, you can try really hard and grit your teeth, and you might have some success. But I can tell you, when you will really start to grow is when you start becoming more satisfied with God and more dissatisfied with everything that is not God. When you start to realize that God's better than this sin that I'm struggling with right here, that offers fleeting momentary pleasure but, but God is better. This, God offers infinite, e eternal pleasure. Right? Far more happiness, far better happiness than this sin could offer. And so part of the key to walk in holiness, seek satisfaction in God above all things. You know, I gave this analogy to the, I think the high school kids last year. When I was little, I loved SpaghettiOs. Like, I loved them. I could eat, like, a whole can. Maybe two. I don't know. But I, just, I loved them. I remember my dad would look at me. He would tell me, those are disgusting. I don't know how you eat those. I didn't understand. I was like, these are amazing. I don't know what you're talking about. They're so good. I just want to eat SpaghettiOs. You know how often I eat SpaghettiOs now? Never. In fact, I, I agree with my dad now. Now I realize that they're, like, 
nasty circular noodles and like tomato water. Like, I agree, they look disgusting. Now, what did I have to do to stop eating SpaghettiOs? Put ketchup? I do like ketchup, Roger. So. Let me, did, did I like grit my teeth and try really hard? Like, all right, no more SpaghettiOs, cold turkey, like I'm done with them. Like I, I'm just, I'm done, I'm done with these. Like they just, you know, they just leave me wanting more SpaghettiOs, I'm done. They, I just leave me so shameful and I feel sinful. So like, I'm done with SpaghettiOs. Like, no, that's not what I did. I'll tell you what I did do is I discovered better food. I don't even, I don't crave SpaghettiOs anymore. I, there's better food. Why have SpaghettiOs when I can have a uh, 10-ounce ribeye steak? Or Chipotle? Or Chumpotle? I, I became increasingly dissatisfied with SpaghettiOs, increasingly satisfied with something far better. And, and so it is with God. Right, we, we can try to kick our sinful habits by trying really hard. You might have success. You might not. Until you learn to be more and more satisfied with God and more and more dissatisfied with the pleasure that sin has to offer, the more holy you will become. So church, listen, God does not want us to either be happy or be holy. If we are truly pursuing holiness, we will truly be pursuing happiness. And if we are truly pursuing happiness, we will truly be pursuing holiness. Now, what that means sometimes, though, is this. Sometimes you will forsake instantaneous happiness to pursue holiness. There may be times when doing something that is unholy will make you happy, but just for a, a moment, just a fleeting second or two. So in those moments, I think what we have to understand is that I'm going to forsake my happiness for now, and pursue holiness, all the while knowing that by pursuing holiness, forsaking this momentary happiness, I'm seeking a far greater happiness. So I'm, I'm putting off happiness for not for long, just postponing instant gratification for a far greater gratification in the end. So sometimes you will forsake your momentary happiness, but understand that ultimately your happiness is served by your holiness. The more holy you will be, the more holy you will become. And in that day when we will meet Christ face to face, we'll be freed from sin, finally. Praise God for that. We'll be perfectly holy in that moment. We will also be perfectly happy for all eternity. Perfectly holy and perfectly happy. So that, that was implication number two from our main point. So the third and final implication is this. If you remember our main point, that God has created us to find our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate pleasure and happiness in him. All right, we went through those first two implications. God is glorified by our happiness in him. We don't need to choose between happiness and holiness. And lastly is this. The good news of the gospel is good news precisely because God is satisfying above all things. All right. The good news of the gospel is good news because God is satisfying above all things. Let's think about this. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin, possessed no sinful nature, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, 
died a substitutionary death on the cross on our behalf, rose again victorious, right? Now we know that we put our faith in Christ. Our sin is credited to him on the cross. His righteous life is credited to us. We believe in him. We now have perfect right standing before God for all eternity when we put our faith in him, knowing that then we will spend eternity with God in his presence. Right? That's the gospel. That's good news. And all the things within the gospel, forgiveness of sins, we're forgiven of our sins, well, we're justified, given right standing before God, will eventually be glorified in God's presence, sharing in his glory, spending eternity with him. Adopted, we're adopted as God's children. He's now our loving and good father. But why, why, is all, why are all those things good news? Why is the gospel good? It's because God is satisfying above all things. Think about it. Why is forgiveness of sins a good thing? Forgiveness of sins is a good thing because before, my sin was separating me from God. God, the eternal, all-satisfying God who offers infinite joy and happiness, my sin is separating me from him. The bad news is that our sin separates us from God. The good news isn't just that our sins are forgiven, but because our sins are forgiven, we are now reconciled to God and can stand in his presence. Why is justification a good news? Because we now have right standing before God. So now we get God. That's the good news of the gospel, that we get God. Why is eternal life good? If God is not all satisfying and he does not offer infinite happiness and joy, why would you even want eternal life? I remember thinking about this as a kid. If God's not all satisfying, eternal life, I'm going to get bored. I mean, think about that. A billion years, 10 trillion years, that's a long time. I'm going to run out of things to do. Like, all right, I've seen it all. I've met all the people, done everything there is to do. Eternal life is good and heaven is good because that's where God is. And God is infinitely satisfying. So if you've ever wondered, well, will I get bored in heaven? Am I just going to like, run out of things to do and just like, I'm just here for eternity now, like, doing nothing. You won't, because God is there. And so you'll be ascending the mountain of God's glory forever. Forever stepping into greater level of happiness and joy and satisfaction. Right. That's why the gospel is good news. Because God is all satisfying. And so in here today, Christians, I just want to say this. Man, learn to be satisfied with God. This might kind of be a change of mindset for you. It might be a, a paradigm shift. Uh, but I think it will be a good one. So learn to be satisfied in God. Learn to be dissatisfied with sin. Seek God. Find your pleasure in God. Now, if there's anyone here today, I just want to speak to anybody in you who's not a Christian. All right, if that's you, you are still that child that C.S. Lewis was talking about, sitting in a, a slum, making mud pies, when a holiday at the sea is offered you. Man, the whole story of sin, when it comes down to it, 
going to make a bold statement here. When it comes down to it, the whole reason that people do not accept Christ and do not choose to put their faith in him is because they're more happy just living in their sin, whatever that may be. They don't want to forsake their sin because they think in doing it, they're going to forsake their happiness. My sin makes me happy. Why would I want to put that away and follow Christ? And so in presenting the gospel, I think a big key is presenting it as God is better than your sin. Your life right now, you might think you're happy. You might be satisfied and happy and joyful, all those things. But God is better than that. And so be reconciled to Christ. Believe in him. Trust in his name for your salvation. Because when you do, you will be reconciled to God. And so then your heart will be restless until you find rest in God. Because only he, the infinite God, can satisfy your infinite longing for happiness. And so, so non-Christian listening today, I, I urge you believe God is better. Now, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and close. Now, we're going to get ready to sing Psalm 84 here in a second. We're going to sing a song that's just written straight out of Psalm 84. I want to end uh, just Psalm 84:10. Looking at Psalm 84.10, it says this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. See, the psalmist gets it. He said, a day in your courts is better than thousands elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalmist understands God is better. He is supremely satisfied in God, perfectly happy in God. And the beauty of the gospel is that what Christ did enables Psalm 84 to become a reality in our lives. Because outside of Christ, we can't say this. Outside of Christ, we can't step into the presence of our God. Outside of Christ, our heart and our flesh cannot and will not sing for joy to the living God. And outside of Christ, we cannot and we will not say, a day in your courts is better than thousands elsewhere. And, and so I just want to say, as we're getting ready to sing this song, I mean, sit and think and understand God is better. If you are not a Christian, for whatever reason that might be, I mean, understand as we sing this song, God is better. Believe in Christ and be reconciled to God. Maybe there's some of you in here who have grown up in church and you've called yourself a Christian, but you've just kind of gone through the motions. But Psalm 84 is not a reality in your life. When we're saying that God is better and a day in your courts is better than thousands elsewhere, that's like a foreign sub- subject matter. You have no idea what we're talking about. And you call yourself a Christian, but you have absolutely no desire for God, absolutely no happiness or satisfaction or joy in God. 
Now, if that's you, I just want to tell you, maybe for the first time, believe in Christ, be reconciled to God, and see with your own eyes, in your own heart, that God is better. All right, let's pray. God, you are better. God, help us to know that this morning. Help us to feel that in our hearts. God, you've created us for yourself, created us to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. God, our hearts will be restless until they can find rest in you. And we can seek happiness in all things besides you. God, but nothing will satisfy besides you. Father, open the eyes of our heart this morning to see your glory. Lord, I pray for us in who are Christians. I pray that we would just see you with fresh eyes this morning, that we would know once again, God, that you are better, that we would be reminded of that, that we would learn to be satisfied with you and more dissatisfied with everything that is not you. And Father, right now, I pray for those people in this room who are not Christians. God, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, may you shine the light of the gospel into their hearts. May you give them the knowledge of the glory of your Son. So for that for the first time in their lives, God, they might see that you are better. Knowing, God, that being reconciled to you, they now get to spend eternity with you, God, ever growing in their joy in you, ever learning to be more happy, be more satisfied in you, God. So God, as we sing this song, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move, changing our hearts and our minds, giving us a greater joy in you, God. Lord, and it's in Jesus' name I pray all these things.